Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. I'm working on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sister's. Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. Every generation has its own little women. I'm so sick of people saying that love is just all a woman is fit for. I'm so sick of it. Since its publication in 1868, there have been a dozen screen adaptations of Louisa M. Alcott's story of Meg, Joe, Amy and Beth March. Their attempts to navigate society's expectations and their own contrasting ambitions play out against the backdrop of the American Civil War. But their competing desires for domestic happiness, personal fulfilment and financial security find an echo in the dilemmas facing many young women today. These are the themes which my guest today, Greta Gerwig, has returned to repeatedly in her work. From Mistress America, in which she starred as a thrusting, indigent young woman making her way in New York, to Lady Bird, where she conjured up the tumult of a teen yearning to escape her hometown. Last year's Lady Bird, her directorial debut, earned two Golden Globes and five Oscar nominations, making Gerwig only the fifth woman ever nominated for Best Director. Her new adaptation of Little Women, with Saoirse Ronan, Emma Watson, Laura Dern and Meryl Streep, among a starry cast, is intended as the big Christmas screen treat on both sides of the Atlantic. It brings the agonies and ecstasies of girlhood in 1860s Boston to a new audience. You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy, and this week we're asking, what does Little Women have to say to young women today? Greta Gerwig, welcome to The Economist Asks. Hello. Hi. I'm a long-standing reader of Little Women and also a watcher of your work. So I've got to know, I remember reading it in bed with tonsillitis, I think I was about eight or nine. What about you? When did you first meet the March girls? I have to say that's a very cosy picture of you in bed at eight or nine reading Little Women. <laughs> that's very sweet. Um, I don't, you know, I, Little Women was read to me. I don't remember the first time it was read to me. It's something I've always known. I've always known who the March sisters were. I've always known what their adventures were. And I, I, I always compare it to the Beatles because I've, I don't remember when I first heard the Beatles. I just know that I've always known the lyrics. So it had a kind of similar quality of I, I just had it in me. And you played Joe March in a play when you were in your in your early teens. I guess the natural association if you're a writer or a creative director, actor, is that you're going to identify with Joe. Was that always the case? Yeah, I, I I always identified with Joe. Although I will say when I was in the community theater production, children's version of Little Women, I was not very good as Joe. <laughs> even though I identified with Joe, I, I remember even at the time thinking, I'm not really selling this 
this isn't really working. You know, I'm not Saoirse Ronan. It's fine. You didn't tear it up and burn it in the stove, as I think Joe would have done when she found that anything wasn't working to her exacting standards. Right. Yes, exacting standards. Tell me, your previous work has, has been original screenplay. How is the move to dealing with such a well-loved and well-trodden favourite to the extent that the March girls and the other characters are, are in our minds long before we sit down in front of the screen and see what you've made of them with your big cast? Actually, that is one of the things that I was interested in, is that there is a collective memory of who the March sisters are and what the story is. It allowed me to play with the iconography of Little Women and of filmmaking, really, in terms of building something that was both the pleasures of the text and then also about the making of the text and about how text is made in general and about how we construct narratives of our lives. So that kind of group knowledge of what it is was useful to me. And then also, I I mean, I I don't know that I could ever adapt something that I didn't feel this way about. Because when, when dealing with adaptation, you're not simply distilling the story or the characters because if that's it then you can just read a plot summary it's there's no need to you have to want to create something that's both of the spirit of the novel but also separate and so I felt that when I when I reread the book when I was an adult I had a very different experience with it I felt like it was just incredibly modern and fresh and exciting and felt like it was necessary to make a film of these themes that were just coming out so clearly in the novel to me. And that I felt that I could be faithful to what Louisa had written, Louisa May Alcott had written, and also then collaborate with her (laughs) beyond space and time on this yet other thing, which is my Little Women. So it's a strange alchemy. And unlike other screen versions that we've seen or occasionally suffered when it comes to Little Women, you have told the story a a different way. We see the marches as grown-up women. They're looking back to their girlhood. It's a reflection as well as a forward-moving narrative. That must have been quite a, a sort of daring leap to take, given how strongly people feel about what follows from what in the book. Did you hesitate about that? No. I always knew I was going to start with them as adults and then have childhood running in a parallel but separate timeline because I wanted to reflect this feeling that I have that we're always walking with our younger selves and that who we are is is not just who we are in that moment, but the accumulation of time and memories and hopes and disappointments. And I felt like to tell the story of who these women were, I thought it would be useful to have it grounded in adulthood and have childhood be this thing that is both past and present, which is, I think, how I experience my own life. And I think particularly with women, you're always walking with your younger self and you're always answering to her hopes and dreams and her vision of the future. That was one of the reasons I was excited to make this movie, what was this grounding in adulthood. And do you think that this is an adaptation which is very specifically targeted on a new generation, on so-called Generation Z or the transition, if you like, from the younger millennials to, to a new generation? How conscious an approach is that? 
I try to make something that's emotionally engaging and intellectually exciting for me and for the people I'm making it with. And of course, I want to give it to the new generation and have them be inspired by this work as I have been inspired by this work. But I think I honestly have trouble guessing what the young people will like because I feel like I've always been an old lady in my heart. They're not Aunt March, I think. I mean, I might be a little Aunt March. <laughs> no, I'm. Um, uh, no, I'm not Aunt March. I'm more like. I mean, hopefully, somebody kind of fabulous. I mean, definitely somebody who's very involved with her um, civic light opera. I mentioned Aunt March. There. The characters are, to an extent, archetypes: the mother, the maiden aunt, uh, heroic tomboy in Joe, uh, Meg, who is growing up and wants to be a, a dutiful wife, and perhaps feels that that side of of the female experience is perhaps a bit undervalued or that she has to kind of sort of fight for her own dignity. How much did you sort of want to, in some sense to to rescue characters here from a stereotype? If I were to throw at you, for instance, Amy, I think she in a way gets, you know, she gets a little bit kind of redeemed with dignity and, and reason here as, as well as the view of a sort of vain, slightly frippery, prone Amy in the book. The character of Amy is actually one of the characters who just leapt off the page to me. And some of her lines were just achingly modern. When she's talking about her desires as a painter, she says, I want to be great or nothing, which is a wildly ambitious thing to say for a woman in the 19th century. She also says, the world is hard on ambitious girls and I think the world is still hard on ambitious girls and she has a, she has a, so many great lines she says I don't pretend to be wise but I am observant Amy is a character that when I was rereading the book I in particular felt that who she was in adulthood felt underexplored to me and and unsung in a way. And she's a silly girl who's, you know, always getting in the way and mad at Joe. But one thing I think is very interesting is that I didn't invent anything for Amy. All of that is in in the book and in her character. And Florence Pugh is, you know, a marvelous actress and, and brought her to life with um, so much care. But also that the culture has changed. It's interesting to me that the sister that we always hated the most was the sister who most clearly said what she wanted and went for it. She said, you know, I want to be a great artist. I want to marry rich. I want to be rich. And that's what I want to do. And we all thought, oh, Amy's just awful. And then now we suddenly think, oh, wait a second. No, she's kind of amazing. She just said exactly what she wanted. I think that some of that change is down to how we see women who want things in a more favorable light than we used to. I'm thinking of your role as Miss America. <laughs> That's right. That's me in uh, in the movie that Noah and I wrote. That's correct. <laughs> Amy's perhaps could have been her great, great whatever it is, grandmother. Let's talk a bit about Laurie. A bit of a departure, I think, from previous uh, renditions. Timothy Chalamet, very, uh, as I found out from taking a teenage daughter along, apparently the, the hottest thing on screen if you're a teenage girl at the moment. I thought it was very interesting, his almost kind of more androgynous look. It made me question, I suppose, the Laurie scapegrace that I'd grown up with and, and how much that role changes as you explore 
the role of the girls in more depth. What, what did you make of him? Laurie um, is one of the most beloved literary male characters. And I think so much of it is because of his inherent androgyny. You know, it's right there. Laurie is a boy with a girl's name and Joe is a girl with a boy's name. And while Joe is wants to go to war and says the whole book she wants to be a boy, Laurie has, there's a whole sequence where he buys way too many neckties and he's uh, got a necktie buying problem and he's he's kind of a dandy he's a flaneur he's certainly not kind of a stereotype of a masculine man and 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 that gender switching that Joe and Lori engage in is has always been pretty fascinating to me. One of the things I loved about Timothy Chalamet paired with Saoirse Ronan is they are both simultaneously beautiful and handsome. And I had them with my costume designer, Jacqueline Duran, we had them switch switch costumes the entire film. They're always wearing each other's vests or each other's neckties or little pieces show up in, in one another's uh, wardrobe because I wanted to create that almost unconscious sense of they exist in pre-gender category childhood. And I, I didn't want to assign a 21st century lens to it. I just wanted to extract what was there in the book. Women have a lot of practice projecting themselves into the consciousness of male characters. We can go to the movies and and, and watch a movie about a man and, and feel that we are that man. Men have somewhat less practice projecting themselves into the mind of a female character. And what I think is so wonderful about Laurie is he's really projecting into the lives of these sisters. He wants to be part of them. He doesn't know if he wants to marry one or be one, but he wants to be in the secret world that no one else gets to be in but the women. And that itself, that projection into a female space and a female consciousness is what I think makes him such a beautiful character that girls love is because he loves them in a way that is not possessive or, or, or looking to change them or bring them into his world. He wants to be part of theirs. And in the middle of preparing for Little Women, you made Ladybird. And at that point, that grew on your own girlhood uh, growing up in, in Sacramento and also on the tension between generations. I think it had the working title Mothers and Daughters, which could also describe Little Women to an extent. Did, did you feel parallels between the two? They both speak to what I am interested in at this moment as a writer and as a director, which is lives of girls and women, and treating them as equal to lives of men and boys and just as worthy of epic and just as worthy of big storytelling and just as worthy of being 30 feet tall. So I, this is the theme I'm, I'm, I'm interested in right now. And I don't, I don't consciously construct it this way, but I, even I can see that, yes, they're related. <laughs> As you were, I think, finishing the rough cut of Little Women, you became a mother yourself. I think you've got your baby alongside or not very far away, at least off microphone yes. uh, for, for the moment. <laughs> but how did that change your perspective on this kind of film that deals with women's lives first as girls and as women and and often as mothers I'm still in the thick of it so I don't <laughs> I don't totally know one thing that I did think about a lot with little women was the character of Marmy played by Laura Dern she's often seen as this saint I found all this evidence in the book that pointed in a different direction and then when I was re- researching Louisa May Alcott and her life and her mother I found a lot a lot of other interesting spikes 
sticky points that don't really fit into the mother as saint narrative. There's the line that Laura says, which is from the book. She says, I'm angry almost every single day of my life. And I thought, what? Wait, did Marmy say that? That doesn't sound like the Marmy I know. Um, but she she did. She said she says it in the book. And um, Louise's mother was a, a fascinating figure. And and the thing I was interested in was I always wanted to see the moment before the moment before you walk in the door and say Merry Christmas, my dears. Mm-hmm. I want to know what it costs you to be that rock. A lot of your work also seems to play on the idea of people trying to live up to certain intellectual or cultural ideals. In this case, in the story, to kind of live up to their role in the North in the Civil War and the sacrifices that that could entail when their father goes off to war and the general impoverishment of their circumstances. And you've, I think, also explored some things that follow from that, obviously in a very different time in American history, in Mistress America and and that sort of idolization, both of certain people, of of a character in that story in the successful but uh, slightly horrible Brooke, but also of a sort of capitalism and a way of living and the gap between how we are living and how we should be living does seem to span the generations, that one, doesn't it? Yes, I, I, I have to say I'm very flattered that you are choosing to focus in on Mistress America because I really love that movie. <laughs> and, um, you know, you make movies and then they, they are what they are in the moment they, they happen. Um, but it's always nice when someone seems to connect, connect back with one of them because um, that's one of the things I think it was capturing a, a moment for women and a moment for women in an economic story. And we haven't talked about this, but I, I think you also have a view of the, the economics of, that, that underpin and is the Economist podcast, after all, the economics and yes. The, the, yes. the real life well, concerns think, of little women, too. It's true with the different pieces I've written and directed between Frances Ha, Lady Bird, Mistress America, Little Women, the economics of art, of being a woman making art, figuring out how to sustain yourself and contribute. This is something that I've always been very interested in. And to me, actually, one of the things I said when I went to Sony and told them I wanted to write and direct this movie, which was vaguely ridiculous at that moment because I had not written and directed anything alone, but I said, I I have to do this. I have an idea was, I think the first thing I said to them is this book is all about money. The first line of the book is Christmas won't be Christmas without any presents. And it's so dreadful being poor. And I thought this is something that is threaded throughout this whole book. And it's something that is very functional in the life of Louise May Alcott. I gave Sersha as Joe a lot of the lines that Louisa said in life. She said, money is the aim and end of my mercenary existence. She also said, I can't afford to starve on praise. That's what she said after Henry James gave her one of her other novels, A Pan. And she said, and and I just thought that that was such a wonderful retort because he was a trust fund kid, essentially. And she came from nothing. And she had to write in order to make money for her family because they were wretchedly poor. They were poorer than the marches. Everything about this book and everything about Louise's life was reminded me of the Virginia Woolf formulation from A Room of One's Own, which is to write, you need a room of one's own and money. She said you need money. And she said, the question is not why are there no great women writers? The question is why have women always been poor? Because poetry depends upon intellectual freedom and intellectual freedom depends upon material things. If we go that way with the great writers, and I suspect that sort of a a lot of uh, American readers and audiences might respond to 
reinterpreting Louisa May Alcott the way it is with Brits when it comes to Jane Austen. You know, it's like you're at your own peril, really, aren't you? And one of the things that happens, I mean, both of these writers can, in a sense, be reduced to economics and they understand how dangerous it is for women to be poor and how really dangerous to uh, to their survival, but also how it limits them. And yet there are other things that these societies, they're two different, different points, uh, Jane Austen uh, earlier in the century and uh, America at a different stage of its development in the late 19th century. People believe in things very strongly. They believe in God and country in a very different way to an audience now looking at the economics of, of women. Do we sometimes distort the lens if we reduce it too much to the money question? I think it goes both ways. I think with Louisa and with Little Women, I think the money question is very much at the forefront of her mind. I think because of the circumstances of her youth, I don't. I think it's almost impossible to overstate how much economics mattered to her because it was the thing that was terrible sources of oppression in her youth. And her journals are just full of saying, I wish I was rich. I wish we were happy. I wish I wish there was money. that, That was such a driving force for her. On the other side, I would say, though, this faith and and values and morals truly for, I think, Louisa and for her family and for the people in Concord, Massachusetts at that moment, which we had the good privilege of shooting there less than a mile from where she, she lived and she wrote Little Women. That was also the site where the Revolutionary War started. It's the North Bridge of, of the Battle of Lexington and Concord, which is the first place that the Minutemen were ordered to officially fire on the British troops. And I think that the proximity to being right there where the country was essentially started, and then also being there as the Civil War commenced and that a lot of the the philosophical underpinnings of uh, civil disobedience and and war, uh, going to war with with one's own country to better it, were grounded in Concord, Massachusetts. I think that connection to your civic duty being to leave your country better than you found it and that democracy is an act of imagination. That was not a distant memory for them. It was very close to them and it had happened on the ground that they were standing. And I think that is something that her family was incredibly aware of, incredibly engaged with, and they were truly progressive people, very engaged in humanitarian activities, engaged with things like social work before that even existed. Her mother was considered to be the first social worker in America. So it's not just money. It is these other things. But for her, it was certainly a very big part of it. You've moved, Lodge, at least recently, behind the camera. Is that a move forever. I mean, do you see yourself uh, going back onto screen? I love acting. And I, I act, actually, I'll be acting in um, a play this spring. I'm going to be doing Chekhov's Three Sisters in New York, which is very scary, but also very exciting. I've never seen the work of filmmaking as uh, so neatly divided into the, these people act, these people direct, and these people write. And I, I've always seen it as I've uh, they all help each other. And someone I'm very close to who's been in both of my films now is Tracy Letts, who's a great playwright and actor. And he's always said to me, there's nothing that you can do better for yourself as a writer than memorize great writers. That, that, That pushes you to be more as a writer and as a creator. So I think that, you know, when I, when I look at 
what Tracy has done, or I think about different people I've loved, Mike Nichols, Clint Eastwood, <laughs> although nobody would put me in the same category as Clint Eastwood. The only thing I will say definitely is I, I'll never direct myself. I will act in things I've written, but um, I, I have to, then I'll bully Noah into directing them. <laughs> That's your partner, Noah Bernbach. If I've written something and Noah directs it, that that's fine. Other than that, I can't I can't direct myself though. It's too difficult. And has much changed in the the business? And you you've been around in it and aspiring in it for for a long time. You found your own way through it. Has much changed since the Me Too movement came on the scene? We know that's been very complicated. It's meant uh, very difficult choices for people, and I think in some cases some regrets. You said you yourself you wouldn't work with Woody Allen again. Has it also changed a lot? Apart from people looking back over things that they didn't know or perhaps acknowledge enough. The the effort that the different companies have made to produce films written and directed and produced by women, they don't feel that they can just simply not hire them. And I think this is this was actually just recently in the Annenberg study, which they, they uh, release every year in terms of what are the top 100 grossing films. This is the most this year has ever been made by women. I think it's five, but, <laughs> but that's actually better than it's ever been. And I think that this is actually due to this, this change. And I think that there's a consciousness that the things that were acceptable are, are shifting. And I think that it, it really is down to who is being given positions of power and, and what stories are, are being told and by whom. And that, I think, is directly related to that shift. And your next project, just as we come to a close, I think you've been confirmed as co-writer of the new Barbie live-action film, no yeah. less. Because <laughs> psychedelic thought on which uh, which to conclude with Margot uh, Robbie. How will you bring the earnest enthusiasm, the realism of a lot of your characters to the pink heels, blonde hair, oh. and the minuscule waist of Barbie? Oh, just you wait. <laughs> no, I, I, I mean, it's it's so early days. I feel like I can't really talk about it yet. But um, I will say that uh, I'm a huge fan of Margot Robbie. And I will we'll try to cook something up that's... Um, that's Barbie would be uh, active in the Me Too movement. Oh, that's wild. Yes. I don't know. Did you just say the word psychedelic? I like that word as applied to Barbie. I think that's that's a that's a nice word. Uh, that's all I can say about it. <laughs> well, thank you very much. We'll perhaps come back and talk to you later about that. Greta Gerwig, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And we'd love to know what you think. Would Barbie be marching these days for Me Too? And I'd like to know who your favourite character is in Little Women. I have a feeling that I ought to be independent, Joe, but I do have a sneaking regard for the amount that Meg wants to spend on a dress or Amy's desire to see Paris. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And while you're with us, don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Anne McElvoy, and in London, this is The Economist. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.